Welcome to Bakersfield First Assembly of God's podcast. We are so excited that you joined us today. Our lead pastor, Pastor James Lair, is fired up and ready to preach. I hope you enjoy this sermon. Because of centuries of sin and wickedness, Judah was conquered and exiled to Babylon. And they, they had continued to sin even after God sent prophet after prophet to warn them. They did horrendous things, even sacrificed their own children. But doesn't that sound familiar even today? The wickedness of our land. And after 70 years, Zechariah returned to Jerusalem with about 50,000 other Jewish exiles. And he prophesied during this time regarding the rebuilding of the temple. They had started the temple, but it stopped. And he was sent by God to challenge them to start rebuilding again. Because he also prophesied about the first and second coming of Christ. And the temple needed to be completed to usher in the first coming of Christ. And so the title of our series is Your King is Coming because... We know Jesus is coming for us a second time. And we must be ready and watching for the Lord's return. The Bible says this so often that are you ready? Are you watching? And so that's what our study about in Zechariah is getting ready because our king is coming. Now, Zechariah had many unique and unusual visions. And here is the second one that he had in Zechariah 1.18. Then I looked up and there before me were four horses, four horns, I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise his head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. And so in these four short verses, we're going to dig deep. Is that okay? We're going to go deep into this to study this and what it means, because there's a lot of symbolism here. And what's important is when we study, especially end-time prophecy, there's a lot of symbolism in in end-time prophecy. We need to be careful that we don't misinterpret the symbols. And so we're going to do our best to find out what this means. First of all, in the Bible, number one, horns represent strength. Now, this is speaking of the horns of an animal, not the musical instrument. So you just got to clarify that. Although the horn of a ram could be sounded as a call to war. And in this symbolism, it's significant, the mention of a horn in this context. And according to Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary, it states... Because the horn was used by animals as a weapon, it came to symbolize power and might. And God lifts up the horn of the righteous, but cuts off the horn of the wicked. Probably as an extension of this meaning of the word, horns in the visions of Daniel and John and Zechariah symbolized kingdoms and individual kings. Now, when my hair gets too long, and yes, that's still possible in in certain places... It begins to look like I have these two horns on the back of my head. To me, it is a sign of strength, power, and might that I can still grow some hair, even if they look like horns. But to Jolene, it is a sign that I need to get a haircut. Now, I don't know, you remember growing up before we had camera phones and 
and all you did was you took a picture and then you had to wait till the roll was done and take it into a Photoshop and wait a week and get your pictures back and half of them were, were terrible. And if you had siblings, how I many you know you put horns behind your siblings and they didn't know it until you got the pictures back? And it was usually the older siblings doing it to the younger siblings. And since I was the youngest, I couldn't do it to anybody. So I did it to my kids, bless God. I, had, I finally had an opportunity to put horns behind their head. So Zechariah looks up and sees these four horns. He's going to see crazy things. And he sees these four horns and he asks the angel, what, what do these mean? What are these horns about? And the angel replies, the, the horns are nations that scattered and humiliated Israel, Judah, and Jerusalem. With this understanding, the Life Application Bible explains, the horns were the four world powers that oppressed Israel, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Medo-Persia. And so we see that these horns represented these nations, and they were powerful nations that destroyed Israel and Judah. Now, often in Bible prophecy, there is the mention of horns. Look through Revelation. There's a mention of beasts with horns through Daniel. In fact, let's look at Daniel 7, 7. After that, in my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was a fourth beast, terrifying and frightening and very powerful. It had large iron teeth. It crushed and devoured its victims and trampled underfoot whatever was left. It was different from all the former beasts, and it had ten horns. Now, this was probably not a literal beast, but it was a, another symbol. And ten horns means ten times the power, ten times the conquest. And so whenever you see a horn mentioned in the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you will know what it means. It usually means a symbol of power and strength. And it can represent something evil or something good. It can symbolize the power of the wicked or the protection of the righteous. We see this in one verse on Psalm 75:10. God is speaking, I will cut off the horns of all the wicked, but the horns of the righteous will be lifted up. And so after he saw the horns, Zechariah then saw four craftsmen or blacksmiths. And number two, the blacksmiths destroyed the horns. Cut off those horns. The nations of Assyria and Babylon in particular had humiliated Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And remember, right before this, God said they went too far. They went too far. And these were among the horns Zechariah saw. And, and since these nations went too far in punishing Israel, then these nations would themselves be punished. And the New Living Translation Study Bible further describes the word translated blacksmiths could refer to any sort of craftsman, mason, carpenter, or smith. And if the horns representing the nations were metal, then blacksmiths were appropriate to the task of destroying them. So God compares these, the nations that conquered Israel and Judah were horns, and the nations that were going to conquer those nations were blacksmiths. And so these four horns represented those nations, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, that scattered Israel and enslaved Judah. And so what do the four blacksmiths signify? According to the Life Application Bible, 
The four blacksmiths were the nations used to overthrow Israel's enemies. God raised them up to judge the oppressors of his people. Isn't it? Again, it's fascinating. God raised up the horns, these nations, to punish Israel and Judah. And then he raised up these blacksmith nations to destroy the horns represented of these nations. Now, the concept of a blacksmith is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. Remember, you got to compare Scripture with Scripture. you got to get context. And so we see this in Isaiah 54, 16. See, it is I who created the blacksmith, who fans the coals into flame and forges a weapon fit for its work. And it is I who have created the destroyer to work havoc. And we know this is the enemy, Satan. But this is a promise, verse 17. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. And so God raised up these blacksmiths, and these blacksmiths made weapons to come against the, the nations, and yet God said, my servants will not be beaten by these weapons. God created the blacksmith. And the blacksmith created the weapons to use against other nations. But these blacksmith nations themselves would be destroyed. You see, they try, they've tried since the dawn of civilization to destroy Israel and the Jewish people. However, God will never allow it. Now, he allowed Israel to be punished, but not completely devastated and destroyed. Wearsby's Bible commentary clarifies further it also reminds the Jews of God's providential care in the past and his promise of protection for the future. For God will not permit any nation to annihilate his chosen people. In the last days, when Antichrist, the dreadful and terrible beast, establishes his kingdom and persecutes the Jews, he and his kingdom will be destroyed by the return of Jesus Christ in glory and power. This is important why we must stand with Israel and love the Jewish people. They are still God's people. He has not abandoned them. And all of Bible prophecy centers around Israel. This little bitty nation in the Middle East surrounded by mortal enemies. This little nation. Pay attention. We need to pay attention to what's happening in the Holy Land at all times. Now Satan has tried to use every weapon in his arsenal to obliterate Israel, but God has not allowed it. And today, Satan uses every, every weapon in his arsenal to attack Christians today. However, we have this assurance. Number three, no weapon formed against us will prosper. I want you to understand that Satan is forming specific and special weapons to use against you to use against your children, to use against your family, to use against your grandchildren. But I'm here to say that if you believe, if you trust, if you intercede, that weapon will not prosper against you, against your children, against your family and grandchildren. That weapon will not prosper. But we must take a stand. We must intercede. 
We must make that claim. We must hold on to this promise. Yes, Satan has many weapons at his disposal. He will use everything he can to discourage and dissuade and cause us to fall and stumble. He will attack us. But if we will believe and if we will stand, no weapon formed against us will prosper. No weapon forged against us will prevail. No weapon turned against us will succeed. Stand on this promise. Because Satan is trying to, he seeks to kill, steal, and destroy. That's what he does. He's the destroyer of families, destroyer of relationships, destroyer of churches. And if we will allow him, he will use those weapons against us. And so we must make our stand. And one of Satan's most effective weapons is accusation. In fact, he is called the accuser, capital A. It's one of his names, Satan, devil, accuser. And so in Revelation it says he stands before God and accuses his people day and night. Satan is tearing us down. He's trying to criticize us. He's trying to discourage us and he stands and he accuses and he accuses day and night and he often uses other people to utter his accusations and judgments and condemnation I mean no accusations judgment and condemnation is not our place it's what the enemy does and when we are accused we may try to defend ourselves however this is what we must realize Number four, our vindication comes from the Lord. It's not the weapons of this world that we use. They won't work against Satan's weapons. We need spiritual weapons. And what we must realize is that we're not here to vindicate ourselves when we're falsely accused or when we go through these accusations. But we are to trust that God will vindicate us because when we try to defend ourselves we just look defensive we look guilty but when we allow God to vindicate us we will be seen as innocent you see people are going to say and believe what they want and we don't always have to defend ourselves sometimes we always feel like we have to defend ourselves we have to go to battle against others but we don't always have to defend ourselves. In fact, there are times we're not supposed to. But we certainly should not be hurling accusations back at other people. Even if they're hurled at us, I mean, you know, we're not to hurl them back. When speaking of Jesus, Peter ushered, uttered these words. Look at 1 Peter 2.23 in the Amplified Bible. Speaking of Jesus, when Jesus was reviled, and insulted, he did not revile or offer insult in return when he was abused and suffered. When Jesus was dying on the cross, they called him horrible names. They spit on him. They tore out his beard. They beat him. They abused him. And Jesus could have called 10,000 angels and just wiped them out. I'd have loved to see that. He had the power to call a legion of angels. But he didn't. 
He was reviled. He was abused. He was persecuted. But in carrying on, he made no threats of vengeance. But he trusted himself and everything to him who judges justly. When Jesus was reviled and insulted, he didn't turn around and revile and insult others. Instead, he trusted God. He said, you know what? God is keeping record. I don't have to. Do you, do you know that, folks? We don't, we don't have to keep record. God's gonna take care of it. And as long as we try to vindicate ourselves, it may never come. Sometimes we just, we, we so desire to be proven right. We, we're so desirous to be vindicated. We just want to be vindicated. And it actually causes us more stress and anxiety wanting to be vindicated. But if we will allow God to vindicate us in his time and in his way, it will surely come. You know, it's okay to want to be vindicated. It's all through the Bible. Read the Psalms. But it's not okay to vindicate ourselves. We let God vindicate us. And in time, he will. When? I want to know when. Date and time, God. When will you vindicate me? When will this come? When will I finally feel free? Well, here's the timing. 2 Thessalonians 1.6. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. And here it is. Here it is. You want to know when it's going to happen? When you're finally going to feel vindicated, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. Oh, great. I got to wait till Jesus comes back before I feel vindicated. Our vindication may never come in this life. Are we okay with that? We have to be. In fact, when we are able to let it go, and when we are able to learn to wait on God for him to vindicate us in time or in eternity, when, we, when we're able to do that, we just let it go, the, the need for vindication, the need to be proven right, when we can just let it go, we will find rest and peace. That's the irony. We want rest and peace, but we think we'll get it if we're vindicated. But you may get vindicated and still be ticked off <laughs> and mad and angry and hurt. What we have to do is release it to the Lord, and then we'll be free. Israel has been conquered by many nations and subdued by many kingdoms. You look through the book of Judges, it happened over and over again. They would sin, God would bring in one of the Amorites or Ammonites or one of the ites, termites, whatever, he would bring them, all these nations, and punished Israel, and Israel would finally repent and turn to God, and God would overthrow those nations, and they'd sin again, start the whole process. Many nations have come against Israel, but guess what? Israel's still here, and they're not. 
All of these nations that came against Israel have been swept into the dustbin of history. Here's the reality. Number five, my last point. No human kingdom lasts forever. Israel was conquered by Assyria. Assyria was conquered by Babylon. Babylon was conquered by Persia. Persia was conquered by Greece and Alexander the Great. And Greece was conquered by Rome. And on and on and on it goes. In fact, Rome was an empire for a thousand years. We've only been around for a couple hundred as a a nation. But Rome was destroyed from within. In his 1944 book, Caesar and Christ, and I don't have this quote for you on the screen, but in this book, Will Durant summarized one of the monumental lessons of Rome. A great civilization is not conquered from without until it has been destroyed from within. The essential causes of Rome's decline lay in her people, her morals, her class struggle, her failing trade, her bureaucratic despotism, her stifling taxes, and her consuming wars. Isn't that fascinating? A great civilization is not conquered from without until it has destroyed itself from within. Sound familiar? Here's the tragic possibility. Even mighty America may fall. I love this nation. But we have to put our hope in the kingdom of God. Because even... Unless something changes, America will fall. It's following the same pattern as Rome of any every civilization that destroyed itself from within. I have often wondered why America doesn't seem to figure prominently into end-time prophecy. You ever wondered about that? I mean, there's a lot of, there's Gog and Magog, which represents Russia. We see representation of China and other great nations. But what about The United States of America, we don't see that clearly in end-time prophecy in the Scripture. Perhaps we will no longer be a world power. How many know that America has been greatly weakened in the eyes of the rest of the world recently? America is so divided and turned upon itself. And you know what? Our sins are as great or greater than Judah and Israel. Our sins are great. Now, it's possible. Remember what I said about symbolism. Often, the prophets would use pictures of horns and animals and craftsmen and a measuring line. There was, so we got to be careful in interpreting these symbols. But perhaps we see America mentioned in one place. Look at Daniel 7, verses 1 through 4. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream. And visions passed through his mind as he was lying on his bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. Daniel said, in my vision at night I looked and there before me were the four winds of heaven churning up the great sea. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. 
Listen. The first was like a lion, and it's, it had the wings of an eagle. And I watched until its wings were torn off, and it was lifted from the ground so that it stood on two feet like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it. Now we know that the national symbol of America is the eagle, and the national symbol of England is the lion. And we've had a very close relationship since the Revolutionary War. Perhaps, just perhaps, this is an allusion to the USA. Having our wings torn off, that doesn't sound good. It may mean something catastrophic. Or it may mean the loss of international influence, power, or standing. Something's going to happen that reduces the significance of this land. But I want to tell you, I'm not giving up on America. I don't think we should. We need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for this nation. I'm believing for a final great awakening in this land, a great revival, a great outpouring of God's spirit. I'm believing for it before he comes. Even America, mighty America may fall. It's not what I want. It's not what I desire. But the reality is this. Only the kingdom of God will last forever. It is the only kingdom that will span eternity. And so our hope is not in our nation, not even the United States. Our hope, our faith is not in America. It's in Jesus Christ, King Jesus. Our king is coming. Are we ready? I would like to do something a little different in the altar today. We're going to sing the song, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. And if you're here today and you're going through a battle, it's raging, you're struggling, and maybe it's you or maybe it's your family or someone you know, and you want to intercede, you want to, you want to make sure those weapons don't prosper. Satan has a weapon designed for you, but it will not prosper if you believe, if you obey, if you stand. And so I'm going to invite you today to either come to the altars or stay in your seats, make an altar where you're at, and let's intercede, because there are people today under attack from Satan, and we need to Stand in the gap for them. And we need to believe for ourselves. The battle belongs to the Lord. We can't win this battle on our own. We can't fight this in the flesh. It has to be won in the spirit. And the battle belongs to the Lord. It's not our fight. It's his. Now we are to take our stand and pray. But ultimately, victory comes from the Lord. So would you stand with me? If you want to come to the altar now, or you want to just stay where you're at, if there's someone on your heart, a battle you're fighting, then let's pray. Let's sing this song and make it our declaration. Thank you for tuning in today. We are so excited that you joined us. If you chose to say yes to Christ today, we would love for you to text the word, born again, all one word, 
to 94090. By doing so, you will receive more information on your next steps in following Christ. We meet every Sunday at 8.30 and 11 a.m. right here in Bakersfield, California. At 4901 California Avenue, we would love for you to join us in person. Also, we have a live stream service at 11 a.m. every Sunday morning. You can find us on YouTube and Facebook. If you'd like more information about Bakersfield First Assembly of God, you can search us on the internet at bakersfieldfirst.com. Thank you for joining us today and have a blessed week.